good singing, church family. Man, it's good. You can give them another hand. I appreciate them. Appreciate what they do. So grateful for that worship ministry and Jeff and the team around him and how they lead us. It's my privilege now to lead you into the Word. If you have your copy of God's Word, which I hope you do, I'd like you to find the book of Exodus. And when you find the book of Exodus, I'd like to direct your attention to the 10th chapter, Exodus chapter 10. And this morning, I'll be preaching from verse 21 down through the first few verses of chapter 11. It is the joy and the honor and a deep-felt conviction at Church at the Mill that the greatest and most faithful way to preach God's Word is to do so systematically. So for those of you who are guests, perhaps you're a family member of a baptismal candidate, maybe you're just checking us out online or here in person, we walk through books of the Bible verse by verse, and we began the book of Exodus back earlier this fall, right at the end of summer, and we find ourselves almost through with the second mini-series within it called Plagued by Pride. The book of Exodus is one of the more well-known stories in the Old Testament of God delivering his chosen people, the Jews, from Egyptian slavery and captivity and into the promised land. It has been especially enlightening to study this in lieu of today's modern events where we still see the Jewish people fighting to hold on to and to protect the land that we believe they have a right to. Two. And so, one of the significant things we find as we dig into our Bibles is that our Bibles inform us of how to view modern-day events. This is called a biblical world view. We'll speak to that in just a moment. But we come today to one of the more significant conversations in the book of Exodus— because it is the final showdown between Moses and Pharaoh. In fact, that's what I'd like you to give me the honor of calling this sermon, the final showdown. Now, we've seen showdowns before. I grew up watching westerns where there'd be a showdown, and you'd have that music in the back, and the eyes of the gunfighters would look down the street at one another, and one of them would uncover their six-shooter, and their spurs would rattle as they stepped forward. And then, of course, as you get a little older and you, you're filled with testosterone, in my case, you, you kind of think about that showdown between two fighters, you know, how they always have the press conference before the fight. And it's all promotion where they get in one another's face, like Floyd Mayweather, Conor McGregor, whether you're a boxing fan or MMA or whatever, they get in one another's face. And you have to remember, these are two millionaires really happy about being millionaires, so don't, don't get caught up in it. It, it. Six months after the fight, you'll see them hugging and talking and partying together. But they're all looking at one another, and one of them will shove the other, and the promoter will break them up, you know, and they're trying to build up the anticipation. There are these showdowns. Sadly, though, there are real showdowns, not fabricated ones, not showdowns for athletics or entertainment. There are showdowns between world powers. We're seeing that now between Israel and Hamas. But this is not the first time we've seen this. In fact, one of the more interesting ones in history was that you may not remember that long before World War II broke out, Adolf Hitler was attempted to be negotiated with by men like Neville Chamberlain, who was the prime minister of the United Kingdom. 
And, and there were several concessions made to Adolf Hitler. In fact, he took parts of Czechoslovakia and other parts of Austria. And finally, he invades Poland in 1939. And Neville Chamberlain, the British prime minister, many of which feel as though his failure to leadership led to some of this. That's uh, for historians to debate. But Neville Chamberlain basically said to Hitler in a negotiation, if you don't withdraw from Poland, we're done talking. There'll be no negotiations. And so they delivered him an ultimatum, withdrawal from Poland. And if you were in Great Britain in 1939, you did not have a television set, but you would have listened to radio broadcast by the BBC, of course. And the radio broadcast that came over was rather eerie because it would be the prerequisite for tremendous worldwide devastation. This is what you would have heard in 1939 had you been a citizen of the United Kingdom. I am speaking to you from the cabinet room at 10 Downing Street. This morning, the British ambassador in Berlin handed the German government a final note stating that unless we heard from them by 11 o'clock that they were prepared at once to withdraw their troops from Poland, a state of war would exist between us. I have to tell you now that no such undertaking has been received and that consequently this country is at war with Germany. All negotiation ended. And from that, the largest war to ever be fought on the globe began when the talking stopped. Moses has been dealing with Pharaoh now repeatedly. Some historians believe for weeks on end. The plagues didn't happen 10 days in a row. And finally, we get to the ninth and the tenth plague. A plague of darkness and a plague of death. And the final showdown happens. Now, in this final showdown, it really divides itself beautifully into three parts. There's the final conversation. Now, the conversation doesn't begin because Pharaoh invited Moses into his presence to negotiate. It actually begins with the ninth plague, which is why I draw your attention to chapter 10, beginning in verse 21. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand toward heaven, that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, a darkness to be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand toward heaven, and there was pitch darkness in all the land of Egypt three days. They did not see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days, but all the people of Israel had light where they lived. Then Pharaoh called Moses and said, go, serve the Lord. Your little ones also may go with you. Only let your flocks and your herds remain behind. But Moses said, verse 25, you must also let us have sacrifices and burnt offerings that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. Our livestock also must go with us. Not a hoof shall be left behind for we must take of them to serve the Lord our God. And we do not know with what we must serve the Lord until we arrive there. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. We've seen this before. And he would not let them go. And here's where it ends. Then Pharaoh said to him, get away from me. 
take care never to see my face again. For on the day you see my face, you shall die. (laughs) And rather ironically, Moses said, as you say, I will not see your face again. Translation, you can say that again, Pharaoh. You have no idea how accurate you are being. The cause of this conversation is, of course, the ninth plague, the plague of darkness. Now, this is not just night for a day. This is not an eclipse. This is a miraculous darkness. Some scholars argue that God may have done it through what is known in that region as an intense, long-lasting sandstorm uh, that's caused by hot wind, dry, arid temperatures, loose soil, and it can literally block out the sun. The text does not give me liberty to say that is exactly how it happened. I don't know. All I know is it was a darkness, and the writer says, Moses later says, it was a darkness that can be felt. Interestingly, in the original language, that can also mean to grope, to try to feel, which makes sense that the darkness was so dark and you couldn't see in front of you that the only thing you're left to do is to feel around. You ever do that? That's a great way to stump your toe. But it's the only thing that was left to do is to feel your way around to a light switch or to a drawer where you keep candles or a flashlight when the power goes out. But you have to remember something. There are no flashlights. There were very few peasants in Egypt that would have had more than just a few candles or lanterns. And this lasted not two hours. I can deal with two hours of darkness, especially if my children go to sleep, because I'm going to sleep. But this is three days of total darkness. It broke the back of Pharaoh's willingness to resist. And so, What we find is that the darkness is really a precursor. Now, when you study the Bible holistically, darkness is often associated with the judgment of God. The day of the Lord is often associated with darkness. Remember that I told you when we begin the study of the plagues that they are going to progress in the severity of the suffering of the consequences that will take place. That God in his mercy and his graciousness began with plagues that were unpleasant, but they weren't life-threatening. Now he's sucking the light out of Egypt. And miraculously, as we have seen now for several plagues, he did not allow his own people to be in darkness. We, we know that darkness is associated with God's judgment. In the book of Amos, Amos is prophesying about the day of the Lord, and he says, on that day, declares the Lord, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. You remember when the wrath of God was poured out on Jesus? You remember what happened on Good Friday? The writer of the gospel tells us that in the book of Luke, chapter 23. It was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. So the last three hours of Jesus' suffering of the cross was done in darkness, reiterated the full judgment of God. Something is happening that is horrific in darkness. So finally, Pharaoh says, okay, I'm going to make a concession. Go. Now, if you've been tracking with me along these plagues, at first he said, well, tell God to get rid of the frogs. God would get rid of the frogs or the gnats or or the locusts, and then Pharaoh would change his mind. He was hard in his heart. But here he says, okay, fine. You can go, but don't take any animals with you. Why would Pharaoh say that? 
Look what the Bible says, beginning in chapter 10, verse 24. Then Pharaoh called Moses and said, go serve the Lord, you little ones, with your little ones, because there was a point where he didn't want them to take the children. And he says, only let your flocks and your herds remain behind. So what if I told you that war had broken out and you have to evacuate with your family, but take no money with you? That would be foolish. In fact, if something happened in your life and you had to uproot your family, you would try to acquire as much cash or liquidity as possible because you know something about your family. Whether you're traveling or sitting still, they have to eat. They need medical care. Not one of you would take a long journey without thinking of preparing yourself financially for that. Your kids may always just happen to forget their wallet in the gas station, but you have to have yours. And I have to have mine, unless I'm eating lunch with you and then I forget my wallet. But whenever I travel, I must take with me the resources my family needs to survive. It's just common sense. Pharaoh wanted this civilization of slaves to return. So he knew, if I send you without your flocks, which is your bank account, your money, your livelihood, your meat, your ability to have sustenance. This is what it was in an agrarian, ancient civilization. If I keep you bound to Egypt by all of your flocks being here, then you go have your festival in the wilderness, but you're going to come back. And Moses says, no. We have to take everything with us because, number one, we don't know what the Lord will require of us when we make burnt offerings for him. Remember, this is pre-law. Moses has not been given the Ten Commandments, nor has he been given the Levitical law. There's a reason your Bible's in the order that it is. He's not been given the sacrificial system. He knows sacrifices and burnt offerings and the shedding of the animal's blood to signify the remission of sin will be required. But he does not know the extent of it. And he says, no, we are not going to go unless we can take everything with us. And he literally says, not one hoof will be left behind, of course, this completely causes Pharaoh to go irate, and he rejects it. Look what the Scripture says. Moses rejected the offer, verse 26. Our livestock also must go with us. Not a hoof shall be left behind. Look at verse 27. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he would not let them go. And then he goes off. So we have the rejection, and then we have the expulsion. Pharaoh says, get out of my sight. This is a triple buy. If you and I are on good terms and I'm not going to see you, I'll say, hey, have a good one. You know, we're in the, we're in the South. Y'all travel safe. You know, always interesting to me when I fly to preach somewhere and they say, well, travel safe. I'm not the pilot. Pray for him. I'm good. I'm eating almonds and drinking a Diet Coke, hopefully in comfort seating, sometimes in coach. But I'm not the pilot. I have no control over that. But we say, y'all travel safe. Good to see y'all. Love you. And then guys will be like, all right, later, holler. We just say, holler. Now, ladies, we translate that to mean when you get an opportunity, call me back next week and let me know how it goes. But men, we don't need those words. We just say, holler. I'm out. See you. Love you. Be good. Tell your mama I said hello, right? Say hello to your mama in them, Right? But if I'm angry at you, if I'm tired of you being in my presence, I will throw you out. Now, this is not something I make a habit of. I've thrown my kids out of the car a few times, or not while it was moving, although I felt like it. <laughs> throw them out of the house for a little while, or, you know, 
send them away. But, 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 but we've all seen this played out, and at some point in your life, you've lost your cool, and you've not honored the Lord with your words, and you've told somebody, get out of my face. Just leave. I'm done communicating with you. <laughs> well, Pharaoh's so mad, this is a triple bye-bye. Look what he says. And he says it three different ways, beginning in verse 28. But Pharaoh's, Lord, the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he would not let them go. And then Pharaoh said to him, get away from me. There's number one. Here comes number two. Take care to never see my face again. And here comes number three. For on the day you see my face, you shall die. Now, I, I love Moses' response to this. <laughs> Moses says, as you say, you're right. I'm not going to see your face again. Moses knew full well. And by the way, it dawned on me this week as I studied this passage, this is not new ground for Moses. This is the third time a Pharaoh's threatened his life. Remember when he was born, a Pharaoh tried to kill him. And then when he avenged the wickedness toward his own people by killing an Egyptian slave master, the Pharaoh tried to kill him. And now here we are the third time. And at this point, as an 80-year-old seasoned prophet of God, he's like, you know what? I'm not really worried about you. If I were worried about you, I would have never answered the call to the burning bush. I've already seen what the Lord has done, not once, but nine times he's displayed his superiority to all your false gods, to all your gods that have no origin from heaven. And so you can threaten me all you want, but let me say something to you, Pharaoh. You are right. It's over. I'll never speak to you again. You'll never see my face again. I am a man who is leaving, and I will not be back. So that's how the conversation ends. But then we see it transition to the final preparation. And this is interesting because at some point in your life, you're going to come across a young person who begins to grow in their faith and they're passionate about Christ, and they forget that God is a God of preparation. That doesn't mean that God cannot call you to do something quickly, immediately, and something that may be a risk to you. He has the right to do that. But more times than not, when you find the Lord unfolding his will in people's lives, what you find is that before there is a season of stepping out, there is a season of preparation. Oftentimes when we talk with young men or young women in our student ministry, one of the things we remind them of is that alongside their dreams and their passions are things like obey your parents, go to class, take care of yourself, honor the people in your life today. Because what we realize with age is that working on those grades, working on that skill, working on relational ability to deal with different personalities, showing up to work on time, caring for your body in a way that honors the Lord, honoring people in authority. While those things you may look at and go, I have to do this now because I'm young, because I don't know anything, because I'm not the boss. Actually, it's all those miniature steps of disciplining yourself to study and to work and to be diligent which prepare you for the responsibility God has for you whenever he determines that you're ready. I got a phone call this week. Please join me in prayer. I'm very excited about it. On Friday, I will preach to the entire student body of Liberty University, eight 
2,000 college students. I'll be preaching their convocation, and I'm excited about that. And I told Laurel, and she said, I'll go with you. Take them into Exodus. I said, really, the plagues? She said, yeah, don't get up there and try to be what you're not. Just preach the Bible. I said, you're right. And so, but one of the things that I always look at in opportunities like that is to remind them that the urgency of getting to tomorrow should never cause us to forget that today, being faithful to the Lord in the small things is the greatest way to prepare yourself for the big things you believe he has for you. And, and what we find is that in this magnificent display of the power of God through the plagues, behind the scenes, he's also preparing hundreds of thousands of Jewish people who've never known freedom. They've never known freedom to not only inherit their own land, a land they'll have to fight for, but also to travel into the wilderness with their entire civilization in tow. Think about this. When you study American history, one of the parts of the South that is the darkest is in time called the Reconstruction of the South. When the North won the Civil War and uh, the terrible tragedy of slavery was abolished, of course, through the Emancipation Proclamation, but then enforced once uh, Lincoln had control of the nation again, the entire economy of the South had been built on slavery. And so the South, which had been greatly destroyed when Georgia was burned and parts of Alabama were burned and many of the other parts of South Carolina and, and Virginia and West Virginia and then parts into Mississippi were destroyed, especially as Sherman went through, what you found is a broken civilization, a broken economy, and a broken labor force, a labor force that needed to be broken, but broken all the same. And so, as the South was reconstructed, it took years to rebuild the economy of the Deep South. Imagine, imagine if every slave had not only been liberated from slavery, but also told to leave immediately and go into the hundreds of thousands to Mexico or to Canada. It would have meant the death of many because they would have been ill-prepared. Many never having left the plantation, much less the county or the state. And so what we find in this epic, important, true story is that God was preparing the Jews for this journey by giving them what they needed. Well, what did they need? Well, they needed wealth. They needed money. They needed sustenance. They needed what the ancient world would call gold and silver. And look what happens in chapter 11, beginning in verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, yet one plague more I will bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. Afterward, he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will drive you away completely. Speak now in the hearing of the people that they ask Every man of his neighbor and every woman of her neighbor for silver and gold and jewelry. And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Have you ever felt like our national leaders are disconnected from normal citizens? Is it just me? Think about how disconnected Pharaoh is from his people. Nine plagues have unfolded over all of Egypt. But see, Pharaoh didn't have to sweep up no dead frogs. 
Pharaoh had people shooing the gnats away from him. Pharaoh had people bringing him water when everybody else had to dig a well. The insulation of this tyrant meant that he would not relent. But the people of Egypt, they're like, listen, if you'll just turn the lights back on, you can have mama's earrings. I, I see that your people are being blessed by a God that is greater than our gods. And by the way, this is not a new phenomenon. God had told Moses this would happen. Remember what the Scripture says about this in the Exodus chapter 3? This is chapters before. And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go, you shall not go empty. But each woman shall ask of her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold and for clothing, you shall put them on your sons and your daughters, so you shall plunder the Egyptians. A few chapters later, Exodus chapter 7. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. That had happened. Whether or not Pharaoh was willing to admit that God of the Bible, Yahweh, was the most powerful God, the people of Egypt were, and interestingly, even Moses now, you would think Moses would be hated because he's always the bearer of bad news. But everything Moses said came true. Moses would warn, if you don't let us go, this is going to happen. It would happen. Moses would pray and ask God to relent, to stop the plague. It would stop. And so time and time again, the people of Egypt watched God, used Moses to warn them, and then used Moses to give them relief from the suffering which was caused by Pharaoh's resistance. M Moses, in essence, becomes a Mordecai figure. If you've ever studied the book of Esther, it's another time when the people of God are ruled by foreign leaders. And there was a man of God named Mordecai. And Mordecai ultimately became someone who was favored among the people. For Mordecai was great in the king's house, and his fame spread throughout all the provinces. For the man Mordecai grew more and more powerful. Mordecai's the one that challenges Esther. Esther, this beautiful queen, this Jewish woman who's chosen to be queen because of her beauty. And Mordecai famously says, Esther, perhaps you've been raised up for such a time as this. What's the point? When God determines to prosper someone, nothing or no one will stop it. The most powerful man in Egypt was Pharaoh, but he was not the most favored. Moses was. And this is also good for me to remember when I see the disconnect between leadership and everyday folks. I remind myself, God always knows what he's doing. God's going to prosper the right men and the right women at the right time to accomplish his purposes. And he did this in this preparation. So we have the final conversation. We have the final preparation but lastly, and I've left the most time for this, the final devastation. Most Christians are familiar with the term Passover. But we can't talk about a Passover until we talk about what it was we're passing over. In other words, the tenth plague is not the Passover. The Passover happens to save the people of God from the tenth plague. But the tenth plague is a devastating act of God's judgment. Look how it unfolds in chapter 11, beginning in verse 4. 
So Moses says, thus says the Lord, about midnight I, that's important now, Moses sent frogs, excuse me, God sent frogs, God sent locusts, God sent darkness, God sent flies, God sent skin boils, but now with the judgment is finally going to climax in its greatest point of despair, God says, I'm not sending anything, I'm going to do it. About midnight, I will go out into the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh, who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl, who is behind the handmill, and all of the firstborn of the cattle. There shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been, nor ever will be again. Verse 7 of chapter 11. But not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, either man or beast, that you may know that the Lord makes distinction between Egypt and Israel. And all these servants shall come down to me and bow down to me, saying, Get out, you and all the people who follow you. And after that, I will go out. And he went out from Pharaoh in hot anger. Moses is angry. Now, if you study Moses... There's multiple times Moses' anger is righteous. There's one time it's not righteous. You can be angry and not sin. You better be careful. But you can feel righteous anger and not sin. This is righteous anger. Moses is angry that it has come to this due to the hard-heartedness of Pharaoh. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh, and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the people of Israel go out of the land. To understand the 10th plague, let's do it this way. First of all, when? Midnight. Why midnight? Most people believe, and I think this is a solid understanding, in the ancient world, you went to bed with the chickens. Did you ever have a grandmother say that? You go to bed with the chickens, you wake up with the chickens. What do chickens, when do chickens go to bed? When it gets dark. You know, you know why you went to bed when it got dark? Because you have electricity. You couldn't burn fuel oil till the wee hours of the night. In fact, hi historically, do, do you know when many Baptist churches and other denominational, uh, Protestant denominations started having evening services? They started having them when they got electricity. And all of a sudden, before your home could afford electricity, the people of the community would get the resources available to get the church wired for electricity. So people wanted to be there at night because it was something to do. But before electricity, you went to bed. Therefore, if you go to bed at dark and you wake up at daylight, guess what hour is in the middle of the night? Midnight. That would help some of you to realize midnight's not a good bedtime. Get to bed before midnight so you can get up early and get something done with your life. That whole point about preparation, right? So, so midnight is the deepest, darkest time. You know what that means for the human body? In the middle of your sleep cycle, you are in the most vulnerable state for attack. 
You don't know what's going on. When you're laying there in bed, you've looked at your phone, you set your alarm, you lay it down, you're trying to talk, maybe you're making a little small talk. Okay, this is what I got to do tomorrow. Lord and I just discuss logistics. That's where it's come to. What time do I need to be where? What do you need to do? What do I need to do so that social services doesn't pick up our children? Where do they need to go? What do we need to do? That, that's, that's, that's where it is. And so that's pillow talk at 45 years old. And so it's logistics. But once you, once you fade into a deep, 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 deep sleep, if someone startles you to wake, you, you, you don't know where you are. You, you don't know. Now, some of you are light sleepers, and you don't ever get to that. I'm sorry. I know you're angry at people like me. You could drive a train through my bedroom. I don't know. I'm, I'm out. And, and that is the moment when I'm most vulnerable. It would not take much to confuse me. It certainly wouldn't take much to throw me into terror. So at the darkest Time of the day or night, in your most vulnerable state, that's when this will hit. What's coming? Death. Death is coming. At this point, there may have been some loss of life because of the plagues, but none of the plagues are noted for the amount of people who died. They were inconvenienced, their health was threatened, animals certainly died. But no large-scale die-off of human beings. Now, this is interesting because it proves that in God's mind, this is the greatest form of judgment. That leads to a biblical worldview that we hold. There is nothing. There's no endangered owl species. There's no part of the ocean. There is no policy. There's no political movement. There is nothing more valuable than human life. We're not highly evolved animals in some cosmic consequence of happenstance. No, no, no. We are made in the image of God. And so human life has more value than all other life. This is a biblical worldview. And God proves that in that as he progresses in the severity of judgment, it is the threat of human life that he holds as the last shoe to drop. Death. Who? Who will die? The firstborn. Now, this is something keeping with prophecy. In fact, in Exodus chapter 4, if you remember, this is what is said. God says to Moses, Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. Now, if you are a firstborn, don't let this go to your head, don't get conceited. But in the ancient world, the firstborn was treated with a special measure of honor, especially a firstborn son. Here's why. First of all, to have a firstborn means that you have reproduced. There is no fertility treatment in the Old Testament. It was a very important thing for a family to be able to have heirs because people in an ancient Agriculture society meant farmhands. It's why it was important for families to have children. They actually had children to survive. One of the things you find about the progressive worldview that is godless that we're seeing is that they believe the greatest threat to the world is the population of people. Actually, that's not true at all. There are major nations today facing a population issue, but it is not overpopulation. It's underpopulation. Perfect example. There are more adult diapers sold in the nation of Japan than there are baby diapers. Japan is in trouble. 
it is in trouble because of a population decline. And this is being proven over and over again as people move away from a biblical worldview or have never been influenced by the truth of Christianity. Christianity always celebrates procreation within the confines of covenant marriage and always celebrates children regardless of the nature of their conception. Always celebrates children as a gift from God. More people means more glory to God. They are never a part of the problem. Now, there are some conservatives that are not even born-again Christians who are waking up and beginning to see this and are understanding that The population of the world is not the problem. Well, in this particular passage, the firstborn is seen as that which is most important. We know that firstborn sons of kings become the heir of the king. They become the prince who is in lineage for the throne. We've seen that recently in the United Kingdom as King Charles took the throne. And we know his oldest son will receive the throne upon his death. And so firstborn also received a double portion of the inheritance. This is one of the reasons why when we see Mary bringing her firstborn son into the world, he is the only begotten son of God. And so God said to Moses to tell Pharaoh, thus says the Lord Israel, my firstborn son, and I say to you, let my son go that you... that." that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, it's pretty hard words, I will kill your firstborn son. Eye for an eye. Now, whenever we come to these moments where God measures out his judgment, you're not human if you don't pause and go, ooh, what do we, what do, we do with that? I mean, pastor, those are the parts of the Bible that I don't want my non-believing friends to read yet until they see how great Jesus is. What do we do with the judgment of God that is so sudden, so specific? One of the things you've been reading about in the Israeli-Hamas conflict is Israel's effort to make surgical airstrikes. You know what that means? It's a medical term, surgery. If I have surgery on my shoulder, the doctor's not going to cut my knee open. I hope not. Good gracious. A surgeon is precise in her incisions. So, Military have grabbed that term and talked about surgical airstrikes. So we see headlines like this, Israel, Israel's surgical strikes pound Gaza. What are they trying to do whenever any military attacks an enemy that has found itself embedded in an urban environment, which is typically what terrorist organizations do? They're trying to minimize collateral damage. In fact, that's the political debate of the day. I'm not making a statement on it, but that's the political debate of the day is how do you minimize what's called collateral damage, which if we're being honest, that language means civilians who are not fighting, who are not Hamas militants, but are caught in this terrible conflict between the nation of Israel that has every right to defend itself and this terrorist organization called Hamas. And so, One of the things that they do is they try to say, look, we're doing everything we can to make sure our airstrikes are surgical. But Israel, the United States, any state can never guarantee any collateral damage. Let me tell you something. God can guarantee that his judgment is so specific that he said, I will only take the life of the firstborn. No military can do that. Only God. And what did it come with? Well, it came with wailing like never before. So what do we do with that? Because if you're a thinking person, this is what you think. 
I get it. Pharaoh had it coming. He deserves it. But the guy that swept his floors, I mean, the guy that dug those pits to find the water, the poor lady that had to get all the dead frogs out of the concourse, I mean, did, did they deserve to lose their firstborn? Those are real questions. It matters that we deal with them, so I'm going to deal with them. The first thing I would say is that I cannot relieve the tension of God measuring out judgment by attempting to explain to you the way in which the mind of God, the justice of God, the goodness of God, and the wrath of God reconcile. Paul couldn't. I'm pretty sure I'm not Paul. In fact, you need to remember the limitations of our human mind. We see life through our lens as human beings in this moment. God is the creator of life, past, present, and future. He's the sustainer of life. And this is why Paul wrote in the book of Romans these words. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. Watch this. How unsearchable are his judgments. In other words, I don't fully ever able, I'm not ever able to fully understand all of the judgments of God. Whenever you dig deep into the subject of God's character, you're going to be amazed by his goodness and his power, but there are going to be moments where you recognize in your human finite state, you cannot fully grasp all that he is and all that he does. And, and, and I remind you of that because every person that dies because of this judgment was going to die anyway. In fact, if you want to get upset about judgment, get upset about the garden. Upon the fall of man, every person will die. Some people die in utero, the moment after they're conceived in a, in a miscarriage. Other people die at 98 years old, surrounded by loved ones. But in the economy of time from eternity, whether you live nine minutes or nine decades, it's but a grain of sand on the beach of time. And so it's, it's important to recognize the vast, grand nature of God and how small and insignificant the years of our life here on earth are. In fact, we have no indication in the text that God consigned all these children to hell. In fact, I believe the Bible makes a wonderful, wonderful theological statement in understanding in its totality that when people die before they come of an age of understanding their need for salvation or people with disabilities who are not able to mentally understand the, un the gospel, these people are covered by the grace of God and they're with the Lord. And so this judgment is terrible. I'm not trying to minimize it, but it is momentarily a part of God's bigger plan, which leads to the second part. One, remember your limitations, but two, always remember that it's rooted in resistance. This isn't on God. It's on Pharaoh. God, God didn't show up day one and say, time's up. Ten plagues, ten opportunities for Pharaoh to see the wickedness of his ways are given. And most of them are forewarned, and there's even some negotiation. In fact, when you study the hardening of Pharaoh's heart, this is really cool. Ten times, it's mentioned that Pharaoh hardened his heart. 
And 10 times, exactly the same, it's mentioned that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Well, how did he harden Pharaoh's heart? This might be enlightening to you. It certainly was to me in my study. Just by revealing himself. In fact, if you are hard against God, him revealing himself won't make you believe in and of itself. In fact, we don't have any reason to believe God did anything else in Pharaoh's heart other than make himself known. You know, the same sunlight that can harden the clay can melt the wax. And when we think about this theologically, think of it this way. Revelation that's devoid of illumination. Seeing God, but not having the Lord work in you to believe, always equals rejection. In our sinful state, we can be exposed to the truth of God, yet without His grace working in us, we will not believe. Christian, if you're born again, hear me, listen to me. If you're born again this morning, you can never become ungrateful for that because it was the grace of God that softened your heart toward Him. This is why... This is exactly why Jesus, in speaking to the Pharisees, makes an amazing statement about truth. He says these words in the New Testament. Chapter chapter 8 of John. You and your father of the devil and your will is to do your father's desires. He's saying you're lost. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. Now watch this. But because I tell the truth, you don't believe me. When you go into an encounter with God with a predisposition to not believe, the more he reveals himself, or not for his grace, the more you'll reject and resist. This is going to help some of you make sense of that person in your life that knows everything about the gospel you do, but they will not surrender to the Lordship of Christ. This is why often sharing our faith should be done consistently, repeatedly, but it should also be done alongside praying that God would work in their life because without his grace softening their heart, they will not believe. And when we think about this judgment, I close with this. The remedy is always repentance. Ten times. God said, Pharaoh, this does not have to happen if you'll let my people go. And ten times he resisted. And yet, even in his resistance, God said, Moses, don't worry. I'll break his will. And I will deliver you. God is good and gracious. God is just. We need both. Think of it this way. When we unpack the Passover next week, the Passover is not immeasurably good news unless you realize the alternative. See, one of my fears of a population this large is that so many of you have been rightfully explained the goodness of the love of God. But we've stopped preaching on hell. We stop talking about sin and judgment. And this is the reality. The reason the cross is so beautiful to me is because I deserved to be there. And the full wrath of God's judgment came on his 
firstborn, that he might die in my place. This is why every person who's saved follows the firstborn from among the dead. Why is Jesus called the firstborn? Because he's the first to step into the grave, step out of the grave, and never to go back in again. And every person who goes into a grave in Christ will come out of that grave in Christ, never to re-enter. I love our church. I love everything we do, and we do a lot of things really well. But sometimes, in the midst of the scale and the growth, we can forget to ask people this question. Are you saved? I'm not talking about your journey, warming up to today, if you died, would you go to heaven because the wrath of God on Christ has been applied to you so that his sins, your sins, were paid for by him and his righteousness is in you. If you don't know that you know that you know, friend, I don't care how good the coffee is or how awesome the worship is or how clear the message may be or how nice people are, we have failed you if we don't call you today to turn from your sin and to be saved. I'm going to pray. And as I pray, if you want to trust Christ, I want you to make a decision that the moment I say amen, you're going to go directly to our prayer room. Men and women are there, and they're waiting on you, and they would love to talk with you. Friend, you may say, well, that's awkward. I don't care. It's a lot better than going to hell. You need to be right with Jesus. And if you need to be saved today, before you leave our campus, you go to that prayer room, and you say, I want to talk to someone about my relationship with Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your justice. Thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your grace. Lord, there are many Christians in this room, and if you, under my voice, are a believer, start praying with me right now. Because there are also people in this room who have never nailed it down. They may have prayed a prayer at some point, but they know that they are not ready to meet the Savior. Friend, if that's you, you don't have to clean your own life up. You don't have to fix your problems. You don't have to get the answers to all your questions. You have to surrender. You have to trust in Christ. And, and the validity of it will not be seen in what you say or some card you check. It'll be seen in a life that is broken before him. And you'll say, Lord, what would you have me do with my life? If you need that this morning, I pray that you would trust Christ. Our prayer room is going to be open. My prayer is that you would find your way there. Father, as we dismiss from this place, we rejoice in those who have trusted you. We rejoice in the water baptism that signifies it, the preaching of your word, the singing of the saints, the prayers of the righteous men and women in this room. And we are grateful that your judgment passes us over in Christ. For that person right now who's calculating reasons to not go to that prayer room, I pray you would melt those away and that they would find themselves very quickly in front of a pastor, a counselor, a friend, 
a brother, and they would be right with you. Lord, do your work. Dismiss us by your grace. In Jesus' name, and God's people said, amen. God bless you. I love you. You are dismissed.